Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. The short course on the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Bolsheviks defined Stalinist ideology both at home and abroad. It was quite literally the master narrative of the USSR, a hegemonic statement on history politics, and Marxism-Leninism that scripted Soviet society for a generation. My guest, David Brandenberger's new critical edition of the short course, exposes the enormous role that Stalin played in the development of this all-important text, as well as the unparalleled influence that he wielded over the Soviet historical imagination. David Brandenberger is a professor of history and international studies at the University of Richmond, specializing in Stalin-era propaganda, ideology, and nationalism. He's the author of National Bolshevism, Stalinist Mass Culture, and the Formation of Modern Russian National Identity, 1931-1956, and Propaganda State in Crisis, Soviet Ideology, Indoctrination, and Terror under Stalin, from 1928 to 1941. His most recent book, co-authored with Mikhail Zelenov, is Stalin's Master Narrative, a critical edition of the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Bolsheviks, short course, published by Yale University Press. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's David Brandenberger. So you've just completed this, uh, completed editing a critical edition of the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Bolsheviks short course, uh, which I think you've been working on for a, a, quite a while now. And it includes all, this critical edition is, is quite a, fascinating because it includes all of Stalin's edits and contributions to the text so I thought we'd start by just having you talk about what the short course is. Uh, it's a great place to begin. I really ought to initially begin by saying that I really appreciate this podcast and all you do for the field. And I'd also like to credit my co-editor in this project, Mikhail Zelnov, uh, who works at Rigaspi, the Central Party Archive in Moscow. Uh, so in any case, the short course. Um, the 1938 short course was a textbook on party history. Uh, that was designed for mass consumption and doctrination in the USSR. So it's, it's focused on party history rather than USSR history, but it actually did both. Um, because it was edited by an official Central Committee commission, the short course immediately became the centerpiece of the party canon when it emerged in September 1938 from the printing presses. And it really stayed at the center of the party canon uh, straight through until 1956 when Khrushchev denounced it as part of the Stalin cult. 
before it was withdrawn in 56 from circulation, the USSR had published um, upwards of 40 million copies of the text in a variety of languages, making it one of the most frequently published titles in the 20th century, short of Harry Potter. Uh, and maybe and maybe Mao's Little Red Book. I guess it even bears mentioning, though, that the short course's influence doesn't end in 56. It's got an afterlife of sorts, uh, insofar as uh, even after the text was withdrawn, uh, the way it structured party history and Soviet history to a certain extent really remains central to the Soviet canon into the Gorbachev period. So the, 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 the breadth and depth of the impact of this text is pretty big. Yeah, well, so why was it uh, this text needed to be written? Well, that's a, that's a decent question. That's a really good question to ask. The The origins of the whole project go back uh, probably 10 years before 1938, uh, back to the late 1920s. Uh, when the party leadership under Stalin began to express increasing frustration over the lack of a concrete, official, single line, like a linear line on party history. There are lots of official or semi-official texts written by leading Bolsheviks, but they contradicted each other. So Stalin asked for clarification, and then he spurred this forward, this sort of search for usable past. He spurred forward in 1931 when he denounced all the contemporary existing party histories as overly scholastic and said what was necessary was a more approachable catechism uh, for specifically for the purposes of mass indoctrination and mobilization. So he made this call in 31. Uh, it took even the most official of party historians uh, the better part of six years to do it. And so they deliver a prototype to him, a finished prototype, only in April of 38. Um, ironically, I guess, though, What's interesting is that even after all the attention that Stalin had paid to the process, when these court historians deliver the text to him in April of 38, he finds it unsatisfactory. He refuses to authorize its publication and sits down during the summer of 38, during the height of the purges, uh, to rewrite it for several weeks on end and really utterly transforms the text. So I think you can think about this as, as that sort of a search for a usable past. Uh, and a incredibly long process when it works itself out. It's surprisingly difficult for this top-down party to deliver even a basic catechism for public consumption. Yeah, yeah, and those are some of the issues I want to get to in a bit. But first, you know, this, you know, as you said, this uh, tens of millions of copies of this book are published in multiple languages. It's circulated, you know, not only in the Soviet Union, but, but all over the world. Uh, and, you know, after it's denounced in 56, it, it also continues to have a scholarly afterlife in the sense of how, how historians and others, commentators, uh, even, even when it, after it was immediately published, understood it and, and, and analyzed it. So how has the short course been understood by historians and other kind of political figures? Well, I think you're right to put it in sort of a set of different periods. Um, so... Under Stalin, the short course was the master narrative of party and Soviet history. Uh, and it, it, I argue that it scripted not only party indoctrination and propaganda, but it also scripted depictions of party and Soviet history and mass culture, film, theater, opera, uh, even in uh, the display cases of museums. Uh, everything had to be re reorganized after 38 when the text came out. Uh, this continues into the post-war period when the short course will be used as sort of a blueprint for building socialism in the new people's democracies of Eastern Europe. 
And even more interesting, I think, is the fact that the short course played the same role in the PRC, in the, in the People's Republic of China, where it stays in circulation after 56 and stretches into the 70s as sort of a textbook on how to build communism, especially how to build like the, the, the state apparatus and create a, a new set of relationships between state and society. So that's within the, that's within the communist bloc. Outside the communist bloc, the short course uh, was regarded as sort of the definition of dogmatic Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism. Uh, it probably wasn't taken very seriously as a text. Uh, historians like Leszek Kolakowski viewed it as the epitome of totalitarian thought. Uh, Sovietologists like Robert Tucker uh, viewed it as the centerpiece of Stalin's personality cult, and uh, Tucker even said that it's sort of a cryptobiography of sorts. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's had the gamut of interpretation from not only canonical text in the USSR and the Soviet bloc uh, to a um, blueprint-like thing for the PRC, and then um, maybe in the West, outside of the communist bloc at least, it's been regarded as uh, a hallmark of the Stalin period and the personality cult. Then the question comes, because, you know, when I got the text in the mail, it's, your edition is a massive text. And because it, you know, includes all of Stalin's editing and revisions. But why did you feel it was necessary to do such a project to publish a, a critical edition of this text? I frequently ask myself that question. <laughs> and uh, Zelenov, so Zelenov and I work, have worked on this for, I don't know, over 10 years. And uh, he and I do a lot of things together. We have a really good collaborative relationship. But we've frequently come to blows over how to do this thing because it's so it was so difficult and so time-consuming. The Russian edition is going to be two volumes long. Um, the English volume is, as you've said, massive. It's 700-odd pages long. So why did we do it? Well, I got interested in this project in the 90s uh, when I first began encountering the uh, bits and pieces of Stalin's editing of this text when I was working on my dissertation. But at that point, I realized uh, that the materials were pretty incomplete, and yet the overall number, the edifice of this uh, historical record was massive. I also found Stalin's handwriting to be very difficult to work with because he likes to he wrote memos and things on top of text. His handwriting was bad. He used chemical crayons frequently when he was writing, so it was hard to read. And so I set the thing aside. I returned to it when I needed a second book in the early 2000s. Uh, and at that point, I got in touch with Zelenov. I had long read his publications from afar. He's Russia's reigning expert on uh, Stalin as a historical ideological agent, or I guess the uh, um, Stalin is maybe ideologist, I guess it would be fair to say. But in any case, Zilinov does a lot of document publication and interpretation. And so I looked him up at the time he lived in Nizhny Novgorod, he then moved to Moscow. Um, and so he and I set up this really decent friendship, collaborative relationship uh, and in league with him, I began to really be put together uh, some new ideas about what this thing was and, and uh, what Stalin's a, a, a interference was. I, I decided that it, at that point that it wasn't merely aesthetic, his editing. Uh, instead, his interpolations and excisions really changed the official line of Soviet history, party history, on key issues. Uh, we can talk about these, I guess, later. 1917, the Civil War, industrialization, collectivization, the Comintern, the purges. He really flips the official narrative, or at least alters it pretty significantly uh, from start to finish. And I was so struck by this that I, I put it at the center of my second book. 
And in a conversation in 2008 with Jonathan Brent at Yale University Press, I mentioned all of this sort of thing. And he, first of all, said that he'd, he'd contract my second book. And then he said at the same time that he insisted that Zelenoff and I do a critical edition of the short course as a primary document for the Annals of Communism series. So it was contracted way back when, I guess, in 2008. It was supposed to be due in 2013. Uh, but it took us lot, a lot longer to do than we anticipated. The, Rus the Russian edition, the Russian edition is only half done. The first volume is out. The second volume probably is two years away still. So, how did you go about you and Zelenov go go about uh, doing this project? In the sense of, as you, as you said a few minutes ago, that it, it the the writing of this short course speaks to the difficulty of, you know, Stalin in particular trying to get a top-down process to writing this historical text. Um, so how did you uh, approach the, the, the looking at the text and the way it was generated? Huge amounts of time in Moscow. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, I w this is another, uh, I don't know, I can't say en enough good things about the idea of working collaboratively with people. Uh, I've been terribly lucky to work with Zelenov here because there is really nothing better than sitting side by side at a big table with all the documents spread out in front of you and and in real time debating interpretations uh you know retreating for a couple of hours and then coming right back at it so he and I, and then and then obviously we did a lot a huge amount by email lots of skype um but we really the uh the um synergy that you get out of this sort of active real time collaborative research is something that I just can't get over. Uh, I, there's no way I would have been able to do it on my own. Uh, he confesses approximately the same thing, that that uh, having that ex extra set of eyes and having that continuous debate going on is really helpful. So we would we would both pour over the handwriting. He taught me how to uh, read Stalin's handwriting. He's still uh, certainly superior in that in that effect, but there are lots and lots of scribbles that require huge amounts of interpretation. Uh, and then trying to place those scribbles in the bigger picture. What does the deletion of a big chunk of text mean? Or what does the interpolation of something in the middle of an extended narrative mean? That's another sort of thing that we've just spent hours uh, uh, arguing over and, and debating and ultimately resolving a lot of these key issues. So let, let's talk a bit, bit deeper about how this text came into being. Because if if my memory serves me correct, the, the assumption for a long time was that Stalin pretty much wrote the text himself, uh, though you show he, he you know, did substantial revisions of it. So talk about the generation of it coming in the 1930s. Well, so uh, like I said before, the general call goes out at the, after 1931, after Stalin's uh, letter to Proletarskaya Revolutsiya, there's a general call that goes out for a new project to find the new party, to write the new party history. A lot of leaders, uh, party leaders uh, and, and old Bolsheviks step forward to try and do it. Uh, some of the leading candidates end up being uh, Yaroslavsky and Pospielov. Uh, and they spend a lot of time in the mid-30s trying to work this narrative out, being supervised all the time by both Stalin directly, uh, by Alexei Stetsky, who headed Agitprop, and by, and, and uh, Zhdanov also monitored their progress as well. They worked at the uh, Institute of Marxism-Leninism in Moscow and had huge amounts of resources at their disposal. Um, another person, one of the head leaders of the Comintern, 
Uh, Vilgam Knorin also was occupied with a parallel project at the Communist Academy during this time. So in any case, they generate a bunch of um, manuscripts. These manuscripts are relayed back and forth to the party hierarchy. Uh, and uh, in uh, about 19, early 1937, right after Stalin's dramatic speeches at the uh, February-March plenum, uh, Yaroslavsky steps forward with a new manuscript and says that, that you know, he proposes to solve all the problems. And this manuscript is integrated together uh, into a combined project with Knorin and with Paspielov uh, to write the party history. Uh, Knorin is purged right away, uh, probably leaving the other two rather uh, uh, concerned about their careers. Uh, but they spend then a calendar year between uh, 37 and 38 on this project. They, they, they write several drafts, which are read by the Central Committee, by Stalin, obviously, uh, and rejected, and finally hand in something which he's had a lot of oversight over uh, in April of 38. And that's and then the most spectacular moment is when he rejects even that thing, and then, and then launches into several weeks of sustained editing uh, during 19, the summer of 1938. So why why does after this entire product process of several years where you know he's kind of involved, uh, why does Stalin reject the final product? Well, so he never writes a memo saying um, why. Uh, the uh, there had been a joke, I guess, that uh, Zhdanov had made uh, in regard to this uh, collectively written textbook that an entire kolkhoz. Had, had been assigned to the task of, of writing this text under Yaroslavsky and Paspielov, you know, lots and lots of uh, minor figures writing chapters as well. And so apparently Stalin off the cuff says to somebody at the time, which is quoted in a letter by Yaroslavsky, that um, no kolkhoz can handle this job. Uh, he's going to have to sit down and re-edit it. And he objects to a whole array of things in the text. Uh, almost chapter by chapter, he has major revisions. Uh, and uh, we can go over some of those. I think the key issue is that he disagrees with the red thread that's uh, um, stretching throughout the entire short course text. Uh, he had told Yaroslavsky and Paspielov in '37 that the red, red thread should be the struggle with the opposition, that it's the struggle with the opposition which should define all of party history. But in 1938, I think he's uh, no longer as interested in the struggle with the opposition and is much more interested in a more positive mobilizational theme organized around the building of socialism one country and the creation of a unified society. I think that may also re relate to um, his declining interest in the terror. Uh, and uh, th the, the struggle here, of course, is how to interpret edits to a historical text insofar as he did not explicitly uh, tell people why he did it, uh, he, he told some, he told the members of the Politburo that he rewritten the, 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 the short course in order to um, enhance its mastery of party theory. Uh, but most of the edits don't relate to theory. Most of them are narrative, uh, narrative elements of the text. So, so how do you understand those edits? Like what kind of things did he tend to delete? You know, because a lot of the edits are aesthetic. He's deleting whole paragraphs and passages and then kind of reducing them to, you know, sometimes like three sentences. Uh, and then he's he's also adding a lot of, you know, na on the narrative front. So so how do you understand those edits? Uh, yeah, this is a huge 
um, issue to try and unravel. I think the, so after a lot of work, I think there were probably a couple of categories of editing. He's a compulsive editor, as you probably remember from your work. Uh, he can't leave a document alone when it's in front of him on the desk. He reads with a red pencil. He reads reports, draft legislation, even published books he reads with a pencil in hand and scribbles all over them. Uh, he was absolutely pedantic about um, terminology. Uh, he really preferred formal, sober sorts of writing and disliked flowerly language, uh, as well as any sort of literary devices like foreshadowing. So there's some basic editing and a specific sort of Stalinist aesthetic in here. I think, I think that's certainly true. He also was really concerned about clarity of writing, especially when the writing was designed for mass audiences. And so he insisted that the short course be stripped of a lot of its um, detail, its digressions, uh, entire subsections that didn't feed into the central line of the text, this red thread, uh, needed to be dropped in order to try and keep this text structured around a handful of key themes. Um, and this is part of the, of course, he really wanted this to be a mobilizational text, so in some senses, he's, his instincts are probably correct to try and streamline it. But then, but then he goes even further, and we were talking about this a few minutes ago, he goes even further and begins changing themes and interpretations of history. So the, um, this original prototype that's on his desk in April of 38, which he had decayed himself in earlier drafts, uh, is, is very stark. It suggests that the Bolsheviks were the only true Marxist party, the only true party in connection with the workers and peasant masses. Party history itself was a history of the Bolsheviks struggle with the opposition, as we've mentioned before. It's an opposition both inside the party and outside. Uh, Lenin and Stalin had prevailed in the struggle with the opposition because of their connection with the masses. So it's a pretty typical uh, uh, paranoid line. When Stalin rewrites the short course, he really changes this around quite a bit, uh, moving both away from the paranoia and moving away from what we might call elements of rather conventional Marxism. So he, he heightened the vanguard nature of the Bolshevik party and reduced its reliance on the worker-peasant masses. That, he's, that means he maybe reduces the Marxism and enhances the Leninism to make it more of, more of a vanguardist story. Stalin also um, turns out, as we just mentioned, to be uh, less committed to the idea of the struggle of the opposition in 1938. Maybe he's losing an interest in the terror. Um, at least he's less interested than he had been before in the struggle with the opposition and instead is more interested in building socialism in one country and unifying Soviet society. The, I guess the last thing I would say, going back to that moment uh, issue about vanguardism being enhanced in this text, uh, he is so concerned about the issue of vanguardism as a leading element and theme of this text that he reduces his own uh, role in the narrative and reassigns some of the agency that, that Yaroslavsky and Pospielov had given him, uh, either back to Lenin or very frequently to the party leadership as a whole. He sort of creates an institutional history out of the short course, which is interesting. It doesn't make it very mobilizational, but it does make it much less cultic than it had been in its original incarnation. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask about this issue of historical agency and in terms of what he does, uh, not just to his own appearance in the text, but but other but individuals in general. Like, what does he do with the you know, because Stalinism in the mid-1930s had turned, in the early to mid-1930s, had turned really heroic in the sense of, you know, you have heroic individuals who are carrying out great feats. 
So what role does individuals play in, in this narrative that he reconstructs? It's a great question. He, uh, in, you're absolutely right. Uh, of course, a lot of people have written about this, uh, that uh, Soviet ideology and especially mobilizational propaganda in the mid-30s really focuses on Soviet heroism and Soviet patriotism. And so you'd expect to see at least Soviet heroism at the very center of the party history. But at the same time that the party history is being written, the, the purges are underway, and the purges are disemboweling not only the party hierarchy and, every, and the military hierarchy, but also disemboweling this um, pantheon of Soviet heroes who are populating the new narratives. And uh, this produces a real problem for the historians who are writing the party histories, Yaroslavsky and Pospielov and others. They have to write and rewrite and release and re-release their texts as, as they become... Uh, populated by enemies of the people rather than by Bolshevik heroes. And so uh, they themselves, even before it gets to Stalin's desk, the number of heroes uh, and leading um, individuals, uh, the, the, the number of these leading individuals is reduced uh, in the narrative. Stalin then reduces it even further uh, and begins, like I just said, to begin to shift this history from a history of leading individuals personifying the party into more of an in institutional history of the party. And he'll say exactly that in the uh, when he launches the short course at a conference of Moscow and Leningrad propagandists in the fall of 1938. Uh, several people will stand up and say that, that they wonder why the number of individual protagonists has been reduced and maybe we need some more attention to heroes in the Bolshevik party, concrete heroes rather than abstract uh, party organizational or institutional structures. And Stalin says this isn't a history of individuals, this is a history of the party. Uh, and so therefore he believes that focus on theory and institutional party structures uh, is the key to understanding the, the vanguardist history of the Bolshevik party. I mean, in, in a way, thinking about the text and its eternal life framing it in terms of, you know, party organization or the party vanguard rather than particular individuals makes some sort of narrative sense because then it kind of, it can have a life where, you know, people who read it, it's not necessarily, well, we don't have individuals like this. The, the party structure is eternal. It, it carries on despite who staffs it. That's a really important point, of course. It's a very historically materialist point as well. So it's it's good Marxism-Leninism. And I'm sure that that's part of the issue that's that's uh, going on here. He had criticized Yaroslavsky and Pospiela for underplaying theory uh, in the text and, and overplaying sort of the play-by-play -play of, of uh, the historical narrative. So he, he believes that he's uh, making the text more theoretical and maybe more historical materialist. Uh, I think it's quite clear, though, that they're also setting up effectively a firewall uh, in case the purges continue. The purges had come in waves. It was very hard to anticipate who'd be exposed as a Trotskyite or a, or a Bukharanite, uh, and um, the I mean the end the the end history of the short course is actually a fairly successful one in that sense that of all of the people mentioned in the text, only Yezhov needs to be deleted from the text uh, in when a unacknowledged second edition is released in 1940. The Every other person mentioned in the text survives the purges because there just aren't very many people mentioned. Those who are mentioned are either already dead martyrs to the revolution or 
are members of the absolute Stalinist inner circle and are therefore assumed to um, probably be uh, uh, not vulnerable to um, uh, the travails of, of uh, this purge. Right. Wow. Interesting. So let's talk about some key historical moments that, that you've written about and, and that in Stalin's view of them in his, in his editing and narrative. So uh, one of the things that you've written about is, is Stalin as a historian of the Bolshevik party and his relationship with history, kind of, you know, capital H history and how he understood and reformulated events. So how did Stalin understand 1917? Because you point out that you know, he starts writing, as do many other Bolshevik leaders and participants, about 1917 in the mid-20s. But by the late 30s, his his understanding, or at least the, his narrative, changes substantially in the short course. So how does he, how does he understand, how does his, his understanding of 1917 evolve over time? I definitely agree with your characterization that, that uh, if this goes through a profound transformation, his interpretation of 1917, you uh, during the early 20s, yes, he does write quite a bit about this for Pravda, uh, and his views on the revolution are pretty conventionally Leninist at the time. Uh, he views uh, domestic events within a larger international context of revolution. Uh, he views the focus on the party leadership to have to be complemented by an emphasis on grassroots voluntarism. So it is a it is a vanguardist idea, but it's a vanguardist idea which still remains connected to uh, a popular revolutionary movement. And then I guess if one has to come up with something which is a little idiosyncratic of his early work, uh, it will be his demand that nationality be considered as very important, uh, that nationality is almost on par with class as a key source of revolutionary drive and consciousness. So that's sort of the mid-1920s. If you jump forward into the editing of the short course, uh, Stalin's 1917 just looks completely different. It's become exclusively a Russian revolution rather than a multi-ethnic or a multicultural or internationalist revolution. Uh, it's realized from above by a central Bolshevik vanguard with a lot less reliance on initiative or even participation from the, from the street or the grassroots. Um, activism and uh, historical agency on the part of either workers or soldiers or peasants or youth or women, uh, even non-Russian, even the non-Russian minorities uh, and nationalities, that agency is really diluted, uh, downgraded, uh, at times even deleted uh, in favor of the party hierarchy and uh, the avant this sort of um, um, vanguardist movement. Uh, one thing that I found was especially interesting is that even local party organizations themselves are left outside of the narrative. So it's it's a centralized story as well as a vanguardist story. Um, proletarian internationalism and the cause of workers' revolution abroad. Uh, even the global context of 1917 as a crucible of change uh, falls to the wayside and is replaced by sort of an anticipation of the autarky of socialism in one country. So uh, 1917 really shifts from world revolution to what we would call it today, Russian revolution, even though that was certainly not um, uh, Stalin's intent to uh, provide uh, scholars outside of the Soviet bloc with a framework. Uh, he definitely considers the uh, revolution to be much more sui generis um, and internally organized uh, by 1938 with much less reference and, and uh, resonance to world uh, history or global 
socialist revolutionary movements of any sort. Yeah, I, I found the the fact that he emphasized uh, nationalities in his earlier understand narratives of 1917, and then their kind of remove their removal in later versions of his understanding of 1917 really interesting. So, what role does and and you've also looked at how and Stalin is known, you know, as the kind of main theorist of nat- Soviet nationality policy. So, where where does the nationality question fit into the short course? It almost doesn't. And this is maybe a hallmark of another thing we might talk about in a little while, which is Stalin's um, uh, professionalism as an editor. Uh, the uh, nationality issue is built into the short course. There is a lot of attention to uh, revolutionary movements uh, in non-Russian areas, a lot of attention to the agency of non-Russian revolutionaries. Uh, and as Stalin is working on streamlining uh, the narrative, he eliminates a lot of this detail in favor of this more centralized narrative. I think one can also say, and it's harder to actually demonstrate this, though I've written an article about it, um, that there's so much chaos going on in the republics during 1937-38 that it becomes very, very difficult to talk about republican-level revolutionary movements. The, the Central Committee of, of many of the communist parties uh, in the republics are almost utterly annihilated. And so you really can't, it becomes very difficult to even talk about the liberation of Ukraine or Kazakhstan uh, or Uzbekistan during this time period. So I think there are maybe two reasons why uh, this this normal interest in national in the national question drops from the short course, basic editing to try and streamline the narrative, plus the awkwardness of trying to include uh, details from the republics uh, can can supply some of that answer. The curious thing is that he didn't replace it with anything. Uh, And so the whole issue of the national question rings hollow. That doesn't mean to say that, I don't mean to say by that, that that there is no more discussion of nationality policy in Soviet mass culture. It's still very present in the newspapers uh, and elsewhere uh, in uh, publishing in the USSR. Uh, I've argued elsewhere that Russocentrism comes to the fore and sort of replaces uh, some of this inf- uh, this uh, interest in uh, what we might call anachronistically a sort of sense of Soviet multiculturalism. So you get a shift maybe in the bigger picture from a multicultural internationalist idea of the Soviet ethic to a more Russocentric one. But even that's not reflected in the short course. And I, I frankly can't explain it. I think that this might be an issue of uh, an unprofessional editor working on this text and removing uh, big stretches of the argumentation about these issues and not replacing it with any sort of a replacement. What about the international situation in 37, 38 and, and the you know real, realization and, and fear on the part of Stalin and the, his circle at large that a war is coming? Does that play into the crafting of the short course? And here this, and I'm thinking specifically this move to a much more Russocentric, uh, you know, trying maybe feeding the text into a greater context of patriotism. Um, how does that international situation play, if at all? Again, very surpri- it was very surprising to me that the party text doesn't reflect those issues at all. The more mass educational texts for public schools, the Russian history texts or the Soviet history texts do, but the party history doesn't. The, I can explain maybe parts of the, the uh, 
um, the uh, reduction of the interest in the outside world and the common turn by saying that, first of all, of course, the cause of world revolution abroad is is not going particularly well abroad. It's, socialism in one country is much more successful than world revolution, and after, uh, especially 1933, but of course the Spanish Civil War also doesn't go very well. Um, the other thing to think about is that, again, like with the nationality question, if one is trying to talk about internationalism and when, if one is trying to talk about the common turn, which the prototype text does do, unfortunately the entire common turn is arrested. Uh, in the summer of 37 and into 38, absolutely leading people, including Knorin, who was supposed to be a co-author of this whole project, are arrested. And uh, there are discussions that, that, that maybe there was to be a fourth show trial of the common turn uh, that was abandoned when Piatnitsky and, and uh, others are shot uh, in I don't know, about August or September of 38. So in any case, I think that Stalin removes those issues in part because it's no longer necessary. Socialism in one country is more important, but also because it's hard to talk about them. I, I would love to be able to explain to you in concrete terms why there is not more Russocentrism or patriotism in this text. I expected to find it there. I think that maybe there are two explanations. One is that Yaroslavsky and Pospielov were very uncomfortable writing on those subjects. It had been something that had been somewhat of an embarrassment, I think, among uh, Orthodox Bolshevik ideologists to deal with these issues. So they weren't very Marxist. And uh, so I think they were awkward about it and put in only hints of it in the prototype text. Stalin strips it out, I think because he's writing this text for a higher-minded, more cosmopolitan, more educated audience of Marxists. And he doesn't feel that they need the surrogate uh, um, mobilizational uh, um, ethos or, or thematics of the Russian national past or patriotism. Instead, they should really be doubling down on theory. They should be inspired by Marxism itself. Uh, I think that's also the reason, one of the reasons why he begins removing himself from the text as well, uh, because this is it's really designed for um, well-educated party uh, uh, officials who no longer need to have their party ideology and propaganda sugarcoated with uh, traditional themes and and uh, images. So, so how does how does given that the terror, you know, makes constructing this text such a problem on so many levels? How does the text itself and Stalin's contributions to it explain the terror? Um, that's a really interesting question. I've got a undergraduate student who's working on a different Stalin text or a different text Stalin is editing or edited during 1937 right now. And so the contrasts are absolutely vivid. Um, the, in 1937, when Stalin is working on the text of the history of the Soviet Union, the Shestikov text, he encourages the author, Shestikov, to uh, develop a, a, a narrative which really stresses the struggle with the opposition uh, and um, push forward with that as one of the key issues in Soviet history. This is also expressed to Pospelov and Yaroslavsky in April of uh, 1937, after the big March, uh, February-March plenum. Stalin recommends to them that as they're developing the prototype text for the party short course, that they also focus on this struggle with the opposition. And so... Uh, under Stalin's own guidance, these two historians deliver to Stalin in April of 38 a narrative 
which is absolutely paranoid, claustrophobic. Um, it focuses on this uh, bizarre conspiracy which unites domestic oppositionists and capitalist holdovers under the guidance of foreign imperialist paymasters, uh, all in this massive plot to um, undermine the construction of socialism in the USSR and return capitalism to the Soviet space. And so the, the original prototype is full of plots and dirty deals emanating from 1917 forward. According to the prototype text by 1937-38, you've got a massive omnipresent conspiracy uh, uniting this unlikely alliance of leftists, rightists, domestic nationalists, kulaks, and foreign imperialists all against the USSR. So Stalin gets uh, frustrated with this narrative. Why precisely? We do not know. My hypothesis, Zelenov agrees, is that Stalin is probably becoming less interested in the purge and certainly is not interested in building the purge so deeply into a mobilizational text. And so when Stalin goes into the last chapter and the conclusion of the short course and rewrites it, um, he rejects this red thread of the struggle with the opposition, downgrades it, and um, begins to shift attention away from the omnipresent conspiracy. So he, and he does this in really concrete ways. He disentangles, on the domestic front, he disentangles uh, domestic oppositionists from the domestic capitalist holdovers. So that means that Bukharin and Rikov are detached from their kulaks, who they had been working in concert with to undermine the Soviet economy. At the same time, um, Stalin also reduces the level of interaction and connection between domestic oppositionists and foreign paymasters. Uh, and so that means that the whole conspiracy itself begins to lose coherence. And then finally, he just strips tons of detail out of it and even sort of makes the difference between the purge of the leftists in 36 and 37 and the purge of the rightists in 38 uh, much less firmly periodized. Um, so the end result is that it transforms the prototypes text um, and its narrative of imminent sort of existential threat of an all-powerful omnipresent conspiracy, this is transformed into a much less concrete, more abstract menace. Um, Stalin also rolls back the immediacy of this conspiracy uh, by decoupling it from specific crises, which had been the case in the prototype. And at the same time, he asserts in the short course that any terroristic plans already underway in 36, 37, 38 had been interdicted and arrested by the purges. And so therefore, Soviet society should be able to rally around the party, uh, breathe a sigh of relief, uh, and at the same time that it remains vigilant, have a take a sense of, of satisfaction in the fact that this epic struggle had been um, completed. So it, it's much less of a paranoid, claustrophobic narrative when Stalin rewrites it, and much more of an of a epic history of the building of socialism, which involves uh, not only the difficulties of collectivization and industrialization on a technical level, but also this uh, enduring uh, struggle with the opposition. What, what place is Kirov's murder? Almost unmentioned. It's, it's used as the, uh, uh, it's mentioned in two chapters, and it's, it's in, the, in the prototype text, it's a sign of the new perfidy of this omnipresent conspiracy. It's a sign that the, uh, um, the left and the right are now firmly working in unison together under uh, foreign supervision. Uh, in the uh, in the version that Stalin will release in September of thirty eight, the the murder is mentioned, and it gives Stalin one of the few few opportunities that he takes to uh, engage in ad hominem uh, uh, 
attacks against oppositionists. He usually is pretty restrained, but he loses uh, his sense of self-control uh, as he's reworking the passages on on um, Kirov and and, and uh, uses a whole series of epithets, uh, which you don't find elsewhere uh, in the book except for the concluding uh, um, some concluding passages in the in the final parts of the book, the conclusion. Um, but it doesn't it isn't as seminal a moment uh, in the final version that Stalin releases. And it certainly doesn't have the, it doesn't serve as the proof of this uh, all-encompassing omnipresent conspiracy like it does in the prototype. Now, the short course has, has long been seen, and, and you've mentioned this on the outset, that it's, it's been seen as indicative of, of and part of the personality cult around Stalin. And, uh, and, and Stalin's relationship with this cult is, is a fascinating subject in and of itself. And it's, it's, it was interesting to me that, you know, the first version of the short course has a lot of this kind of bombastic language about Stalin's role and his individual role. And, and Stalin strips a lot of that out. So how do you understand the short course in relationship to his cult of personality? I think, again, I would probably periodize it. So we first learn about this issue, or it's first really drawn to our attention by Khrushchev in 56, when Khrushchev at the 20th Party Congress says that Stalin is, uh, has, has exaggerated his role in the party uh, and created a cult around himself. And Khrushchev specifically uses the example of the short course and says that, that Stalin has, has built the party history around himself, perverting the course of party history in the process. Um, this idea of Khrushchev or his interpretation becomes extremely popular, both within the Soviet Union, the people's democracies, and abroad. It, after all, it confirms all the egotistical excesses of the cult. And so it really develops a, a huge amount of, uh, um, it becomes a very popular explanatory paradigm in the field. That said, in the 90s already, we began to see some pretty good new work, actually excellent new research on the cult by people like uh, Sarah Davies and Jan Plomper, uh, which began to suggest that Stalin wasn't always uh, comfortable with the cult and at times was quite frustrated with its successes. Um, I've argued elsewhere that Stalin viewed the cult and its celebration of himself and its celebration of Lenin as somewhat of an awkward concession. This is what we were talking about earlier, a concession to uh, less educated stretches of the Soviet population who couldn't deal with unadulterated Marxism-Leninism on their own, and so therefore they needed a heroic personification at the center of the party to epitomize that vanguardist role of the party itself in society. So the cult is sort of a stand-in uh, for a, uh, a more rigorous and maybe more uh, orthodox version of ma uh, historical materialism, and the and it's really using Stalin as a vehicle to advance national priorities or party ideological priorities rather than something that's really all about hallelujahs to Stalin. That, I think, explains why Stalin gets frustrated with the prototype which lands on his desk in April of 38, because Yaroslavsky and Pospielov have lost track of that idea and instead uh, attribute uh, to him huge amounts of historical agency. Everything under the sun is credited to, the, to Stalin and the prototype uh, to the degree to which it's just simply embarrassing. Uh, and so when Stalin goes back through the textbook trying to streamline it, he also uh, routinely removes attribution of agency to himself, uh, frequently reassigning it to the part, central party uh, apparatus, 
frequently, uh, you know, reassigning it to Lenin. Um, but these, and, and ultimately, I think in aggregate, your, your characterization is really quite correct, that he's removing not just entire lines or paragraphs, but he strikes entire pages and subsections of this textbook, uh, which deal with himself so much so that the original authors of that prototype text, Yaroslavsky and Pospielov, write to him in concern in August of 38 before the thing is published and say, Comrade Stalin, do you realize how much you've removed about yourself? We, this, is their, this is one of their few, um, it's, it's, rebuke is too strong a word, but one of their few criticisms of his revisions of the text is that he's stripped himself out of the, especially the first chapters of party history. That, I wouldn't want to take this too far and say that the short course doesn't uh, contain a huge place for Stalin. Um, it certainly does. Stalin is certainly the most important and person, most important protagonist, has the most agency, uh, even in regard to Lenin. But I think that it can be argued successfully that Stalin attempted in his editing of this text to reduce his overall profile in the narrative in order to create a more vanguardist story, uh, which would favor um, the party hierarchy, central party hierarchy, and Lenin, even if it was at his own expense. <laughs> so he's, like I said earlier, he's certainly compulsive. He's really very, very, he was very engaged even in the writing of Politburo resolutions and, and uh, on a stylistic as well as a content level. Um, here he's, he, he dedicated a huge amount of time to this project, weeks and weeks, uh, in which you can tell, this is something that Zelenov figured out, by looking at his office calendar from the summer of 1938, you can tell that there are days when he doesn't come into the office. He's obviously ensconced at his dacha working on something, and that appears to be the, 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 the days and weeks when he's working on the short course. Um, so as an editor, he clearly began with chapter one and edited linearly from chapter one to the conclusion. He did not go back and forth. Uh, he sort of moved from in, through each sequential page. He did a lot of line editing. He'd strike things out. He'd add things in. But I think that the hallmark uh, of the fact that he's an enthusiastic but unprofessional editor is that he didn't really rearrange things. And so in some senses, you get a pastiche in the end rather than an cohe absolutely coherent narrative. Uh, there is a lot still in there of um, Yaroslavsky and Pospielov's. It's got a very heavy uh, edit of Stalin's with lots of interpolations and excisions, um, but it probably hasn't been drawn together coherently enough to really let those red threads be visible that Stalin wanted to be visible. The stress on Soviet unity, the absolute stress on socialism in one country, I think is visible, but uh, a professional editor probably would have done a better job of reorganizing things in such a way as to, I don't know, create a sense of mounting action, uh, create a sense of, of uh, climactic uh, sorts of uh, conclusions towards the end of the book and so on and so forth. And I just don't think that Stalin was uh, professional enough or had enough experience uh, editing such large, important propagandistic texts that uh, he was able to actually pull it off in the end. I, I argue in that in this um, uh, in the the new book that um, the short course probably contributed more to the ossification of Soviet ideology than it did to its mobilizational potential. It, it created a book which is really hard to read uh, and inconsistent in places. As you pointed out earlier, it's missing 
key themes like Russocentrism and patriotism, which are known to evoke uh, um, support from, from readerships and audiences. So it's missing key themes. It doesn't answer issues about nationality policies or uh, internationalism. It's pretty single-minded in the way that it pushes through other uh, real priorities around socialism in one country and vanguardism. Uh, and it, I think that you can really blame Stalin in part for the, the, this book's um, leaden uh, um, anonymous, schematic, sort of bloodless narrative. Of course, there are elements of historical materialism there that are also to blame, but I th the Stalin just wasn't a particularly talented editor uh, and shotgunned this process in the summer of 38. And finally, you know, after working on this project for so many years and this back and forth collaborative relationship with Zelenov, how do you understand Soviet ideology how it's constructed, and the general notion of Stalinism in particular? Let's see. So, Soviet ideology. Um, I think it's definitely a revolutionary ethic. I think it definitely aspires to change the world and change people's consciousnesses. So it's, it's, it's still Marxism-Leninism. Uh, it's definitely very Leninist in the sense that it gives a huge role to the party, its vanguardism and allows the party to do almost anything that it needs to do during the period of the dictatorship of the proletariat to transform society. So it's, it's a very, very top-down centralized vision of the way that, a very top-down centralized ideological vision of, of the way society needs to come together. Um, in this particular text, Soviet ideology looks like it's much more focused on building socialism in one country than it is in engaging with the idea of proletarian internationalism or world revolution. Those are some; those it hasn't given up those ideas, but those are beyond the horizon. Um, in terms of how it was constructed, I think um, let's see. I guess I would argue that the um, the text succeeds on certain levels. It really adds quite a bit of definition to Bolshevik ideology on how socialism is to be built. What are the what is the relationship between state, party, and society? So I think it clarifies many things that Lenin never clarified. Um, less uh, uh, on uh, on the uh, in the negative column, uh, I guess I I would argue that Stalin probably uh, had a very very strong sense of his mastery of Marxism-Leninism. Uh, maybe he felt as if he had an unusually acute grasp of this concept, of these concepts and this ideology. We do know that he didn't hesitate to correct him, to correct even leading uh, experienced party uh, activists and philosophers with his own more dogmatic views, uh, apparently believing that the combination of practice and theory gave him uh, just unchallengeable authority. I suppose he probably gets this from Lenin, uh, from his long period of association with Lenin, but uh, Stalin really doesn't hesitate to impose his own personal views uh, of Marxism-Leninism on this text, which renders it pretty um, dogmatic and, and ossified in the end. Uh, in terms of Stalinism as a whole, um, I guess I think that this project probably demonstrates Stalinism to be a natural extension of Leninism. That is, it's, there's a continuity here rather than some sort of deviation or lack of continuity. Stalin definitely took Lenin very seriously, more seriously than Marx or Engels or other Marxists. So Stalin is probably more of a Leninist than he is a, a Marxist, but he's certainly a true believer in that ideological sense. He really thinks about these issues a lot. He takes time out during the, the, the highest points of the terror uh, in order to work on this project. 
Um, and I think the other really interesting thing that this project confirms in terms of, of Stalinism as a whole is the notion that uh, socialism in one country is not only at the very center of the Stalinist project, but that it should probably be taken back even earlier into Leninism and, and earlier than that. Eric Van Rie has re recently written a really interesting book on this subject, suggesting that socialism in one country is much more central to Marxism than we've allowed in the past, and that therefore Stalinism is much more consonant with Marxism and Marxism-Leninism than we've allowed in the past. So I think that's, I think that's really, really pretty um, visible in this text. And I was gratified to, uh, to begin to notice those moments of continuity because I like that thesis anyway. That was David Brandenberger, a professor of history and international studies at the University of Richmond, specializing in Stalin-era propaganda, ideology, and nationalism. His most recent book, co-authored with Mikhail Zelenov, is Stalin's Master Narrative, a critical edition of the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Bolsheviks, short course published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, SRB Podcast, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Oh, she's a big freak.